Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Hayden Outdoors Real Estate. Hayden Outdoors represents the finest real estate for sale, including farm, ranch, and recreational properties from coast to coast. From legacy ranches to farms for sale, luxury real estate, hunting land, waterfront recreational properties, and more, they can help you buy or sell your next property. Make sure to visit their website, HaydenOutdoors.com, and follow along on their Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you, Hayden Outdoors, for being a 2022 convention sponsor, and thank you for your support. The Federal Trade Commission's job is protecting the public from deceptive or unfair business practices and from unfair methods of competition through law enforcement, advocacy, research, and education. Today we visit with one of the five commissioners of the FTC, Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya, and talk rural America, agriculture, antitrust, and consumers. Well, welcome to another episode of the RCAF USA Roundup. We are very excited to welcome our guest today, Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya with the Federal Trade Commission. So, Commissioner, let's start with an introduction. Tell our listeners who you are and what your job consists of. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, so, I, uh, as you mentioned, I am a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission. I'm one of five commissioners. One of, uh, one of us is the chair, Chair Lee Khan. And um, so we are the uh, uh, the nation's leading enforcement agency to protect consumers and protect competition in the American economy. And so uh, we were founded in 1914 uh, with uh, some antitrust authorities. And over the years, uh, we've come to enforce almost 80 federal laws. But the core of that is uh, antitrust, along with consumer protection in, in a law called Section 5, which was passed in 1914 and, and amended in 1938. Wonderful. So I know it is a busy time in Washington with it being election season, and I'm sure you have a busy office as well. So talk to us about what your day-to-day looks like in this career. Sure. Um, so as a commissioner, you you wear different hats. Uh, one of them is that of an adjudicator. Uh, so the staff teams will come up with a case, an enforcement action they want to bring, and they present it to uh, uh, to the commissioners to say, you know, please, could you vote to support this action and move it forward? And uh, in doing that, you know, we often meet with uh, uh, with the target of the investigation or the enforcement action. So we hear from them and then we decide who is uh, um, whether to move forward with the action. Um, uh, and in that role, we also help set the priorities of the commission. Right. As, as one of the five heads of the commission, we are regularly in touch with all the different components of the agency. Uh, um, uh, you know, referring cases, highlighting areas where we uh, want to see more enforcement. So, for example, one thing, you know, we just had a call with w- one of the shops and, and we said, look, anytime you're dealing with uh, uh, food or health care in rural or urban America, uh, we want to know about it. Uh, and and we'd love to know what, what you're working on in that space. So, um, so uh, uh, it has both an adjudicative role where we're deciding what what enforcement actions to bring and kind of a prosecutorial role where we're we're highlighting cases, we're highlighting priorities for the commission uh, to act on. Very cool. So let's talk about your career and where you came from and how you ended up being one of the only five commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission. Sure. Um, 
So uh, I uh, this probably started back in, in 2009. I was two years out of law school. I got a job uh, as um, as chief counsel to Senator Franken, uh, Minnesota. And um, we uh, were charged with standing up a subcommittee on privacy and technology. And, uh, and so we ran some of the first uh, major oversight hearings into uh, major technology companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, uh, Netflix, et cetera, and, um, and um, among others. And we also ran investigations. And I think what really differentiated these hearings from others is that um, back then, you know, uh, big tech, uh, to speak generally, was pretty popular. There weren't too many uh, oversight hearings where um, they were rigorous, uh, uh, where it wasn't a cakewalk, as it were, for the companies. Uh, and these hearings, I like to think stood out because we we really questioned the companies and their practices in protecting uh, people's data. And so you, you might be listening to this and wondering, you know, what the heck does this have to do with me and my work uh, in, in rural America or in agriculture? And, you know, what I tell folks is that this experience taught me to be really skeptical about concentrated market power and how it can be abused in a way that hurts uh, the consumers, it hurts the public and hurts small, small business. And and the shorthand way to say this is, is I don't like bullies. I don't like when uh, uh, powerful companies misuse their authority and abuse it uh, in a way that uh, creates an unlevel playing field uh, for their competitors or um, or hurts uh, uh, the American public. So that is that's how I got into the into government. And uh, and so when I was offered the chance uh, to be nominated uh, at first, I couldn't believe it. Uh, but of, of course, you know, I, I, I had to take it uh, and had to say yes, because um, because of the role that the commission has in protecting, uh, protecting people and protecting business. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like they made a good choice selecting you to be the <laughs> one of the commissioners. <laughs> um, so a lot of ranchers and, you know, rural communities think, you know, Washington, D.C. is up here over right. their heads. You know, yeah. so talk to us about why the FTC is important yes. to people like Karina and I in rural America Absolutely. and why it is important to American cattle producers. Absolutely. So uh, so. While uh, um, there is a kind of divided set of authorities among enforcement agencies and, and government agencies for rural America, uh, agricultural in general, and, and cattle in particular, uh, and so we don't have authority over some key pieces, right? So we don't uh, regulate meatpacking. That was actually stripped away from us in 1921 when uh, we issued a report that uh, they got a little too close to, to powerful folks. Uh, and so we were stripped of that authority. We don't regulate those mergers. But um but we do, however, regulate, sorry, not regulate, but we 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 uh, we enforce uh, uh, in a lot of the upstream input industries. So, for example, um, we brought a, a case that I'm really excited about uh, about a month or two ago. Uh, we filed it against two pesticide manufacturers who we allege were paying distributors to shut out generics. Right. And so obviously this affects a lot of farmers uh, and, and, and uh, we believe affects probably a lot of the, their products, uh, including, say, the price of grain, um, which affects cattlemen. And so we do regulate the upstream. Pardon me. We do enforce uh, uh, in, in those upstream input industries. So that's the, the first thing um, we also enforce uh, and can't have the power to enforce. I think this power has as as. Uh, has been unused for too long, 
uh, in the retail setting. So we enforce, uh, we can enforce a law called the Robinson Patman Act, and um, we are in our team trying to make the case for uh, to start bringing those cases again. We haven't really brought those cases in in a long time, but what this law does is make sure that small retailers, small grocers, independent grocers in rural America have the ability to get the same terms for their purchases uh, as manufacturers from, from big box stores. You know, one of the um, most eye-opening accounts that we heard uh, in, in some of our outreach were from grocers like uh, Mr. RF Bowie uh, in South Dakota, um, where he says, hey, look, you know, I know I'm small, uh, but I work with a wholesaler. And that wholesaler uh, out of Kansas City is able to bundle the orders of a lot of folks like me in my operation, such that we can match the prices, pardon me, the quantities of a lot of the big boxes. And yet, you know, my wholesaler can't get the same prices, even when he can meet quantity, uh, even, even when we can meet the orders of the big boxes, uh, the price that the big box stores get remains secret. And so that might be an issue under our authority in, in Robinson Patman. So we enforce in a lot of the input markets, we enforce uh, at the downstream retail market, can enforce, I think we need to enforce. Lastly, I think something that, that folks listening should know is we enforce another law called the Magnus and Moss Warranty Act. And why should people care about that law? Um, what this law says is if you offer a warranty on a product, uh, you know, be it a, 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 you know, a smartphone or a radio or a, or a tractor, uh, if you offer that warranty, you cannot condition the warranty on, uh, um, on the, the, the purchaser of that product exclusively using your parts and your services. Uh, and there's a couple specific exceptions for that. Uh, but um, what some of the cases I've been really excited to, to, to vote for uh, are cases where we had settlements, I think, with Harley Davidson, with Weber Grills, uh, um, where we were making sure that um, that their warranties didn't tie customers into using a particular set of services or a particular set of products that might mean higher prices for, for those consumers. And so uh, the chair, Chair Khan, is, is very interested in these right to repair cases, I think in particular because of the promise they have for, for rural American agriculture in the agricultural sector, which I know is a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, those would be the probably the top three, right? The input, the input markets enforcing in that area, enforcing in the retail sector, and then, and then right to repair through the Magnus and Moss Warranty Act. Yes, I know the right to repair stuff is very interesting to our members, and they're very passionate about it because it affects their operations so much. It just brings its own whole set of challenges, expense, et cetera. Karina, were you about to add something? I have a question, actually. Um, you reminded us that in 1921, Congress stripped the FTC of oversight of the meatpacking industry. Is there anywhere else in the business sector where we saw where we have seen Congress strip the FTC of oversight of certain industries, or is are we unique? <laughs> you you are not unique, but you are among just a few. Uh, um, so another area uh, where we uh, we uh, we were uh, hit on hit on the the knuckles of the wrist, um, uh, where, where we got some pushback from Congress was uh, children's advertising on television. So um, the, the really funny thing about this is that is that in the 1980s, um, the commission did some some oversight work, um, uh, basically with respect to advertising of sugary cereals that, that, you know, 40 years later, let me say, still pretty unhealthy for folks in general. Uh, uh, but the commission was really concerned that this was being marketed directly to um, to children. 
and was shaping up to bring some enforcement actions and regulatory actions in this case in that space. And so Congress stepped in and um, and actually said you can't issue rules on under this particular authority on children's advertising and, and set in place a series of other processes we need to follow when we regulate under this particular authority called the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Authority that we got in 1938. But off the top of my head, meatpacking and children's advertising are are probably, you know, among only a few where the commission got a little too aggressive in the eyes of some in Congress and, and our authority was taken away. Very interesting. That's very interesting. So what really instigated this podcast was from what we understand, you recently gave a presentation that was turned into a fantastic opinion editorial that was sharply focused on this antitrust in the agriculture sector. And so in your first year as a commissioner at the FTC, what has piqued your interest in the antitrust area? And what have you found interesting, I guess, about the history of antitrust in the U.S.? Yeah, so I'll say a couple things on this. Um, so I was nominated uh, in mid-September um, in uh, last year, and you know, I think I think we were on the patio. We got a call from the White House, and, and, and you know, uh, it, it's you know, surreal moment. Uh, um, and it, what's funny is, you know, I was there with my wife, and 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 we celebrated, and and uh, calling our family. And very soon after that, the thought occurred to me: Oh man, I have to read a lot about antitrust. Uh, and so I think that weekend I um, I started ordering antitrust treatises uh, online, uh, and um, I also started asking my fellow commissioners, you know, what what should I be reading here? Because um, I'd done a little bit of work on antitrust in the Senate uh, along um, on the uh, a major merger in the in the cable uh, sector, but um, but really it, it had been limited. And so you know I was reading, and and two things popped out to me from that. The first was. I'd spent you know a dozen plus years working on privacy and technology issues, and so I, I thought I'd be really pulled into um, into that in antitrust, and and I was to a degree, and I still am interested in this intersection of privacy and antitrust. But but what really you know um, struck home to me was what was happening with people's groceries or prescriptions and their paychecks. Uh, and, um, and a lot of that was informed by, by, uh, by my wife and, and the family I have through my wife. So she's from, um, Louisiana, uh, from Kenner. Uh, and, um, we, particularly before the pandemic, we spent a lot of time in rural Louisiana and out there, uh, um, you know, the grocery store you go to isn't a chain and the pharmacy you go to usually isn't a chain either. They're usually they're independents. And uh, as I read, you know, I, I read a lot about how it's precisely these independent groceries, independent pharmacies that are shutting down by the thousand because of a lot of what's going on upstream uh, in terms of concentration, they, they say, they, they allege, um, and because of, uh, they say, a lot of the lack of enforcement around laws like Robinson-Patman. And so that really stuck with me, the basics, you know. Um, I also think that it's really good. We have a lot of folks in Washington on the right and the left that are really concerned about big tech. And that's great, you know, and I agree with them. But uh, for me, the heart of antitrust is, uh, is, is, uh, is the basics, you know, is, is your groceries, your prescriptions and your paycheck. And that's the other thing I noticed about the history, which is the particular role of agriculture in rural America in the history of antitrust. So when you read these treatises, you know, you, you just immediately start reading and, and you hear that the heart of antitrust is efficiency. Right. The heart of antitrust is is efficient markets and protecting efficiency. 
And, um, and so if you open up one of these treatises, you are hit with, you know, X, you know, X, Y uh, 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 graphs, you know, um, about comp complex curves, about, you know, how, how to distribute, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, surplus, you know, across different sectors. And, and it's, it's, it's almost a math. Um, but when you read the history, which is, which is something I felt really lucky to do, it's a totally different story. So the efficiency arguments are, you know, oh, antitrust protects competition, not competitors. Um, and you don't hear about those competitors. It's this anodyne, you know, it's this anodyne, very technical reading. You read the history. It's exclusively about competitors. It's, it, it you know, uh, in, in, so uh, my antitrust advisor, Max Miller from, from Iowa, you know, he often brags about how the nation's first antitrust statute was passed. Uh, because small farmers in Iowa, the Granger movement, were pushing for more protections. Um, if you read the debates in the Sherman Act in 1890, you know, Professor Horton talked about this uh, a couple months ago on the show. Um, not a word is said about efficiency uh, on the floor of the United States Senate and the House of Representatives. Instead, what they talk about are how cattlemen are being cheated out of fair prices for their cattle because of the beef trust, because of a cartel of meat packers. And, and it's not just 1888, it's not just 1890. You know, there is pretty wide agreement actually that 1914, 1936, 1950, every time, you know, six times in, in, in five times in 60 years when Congress got together to pass antitrust laws, they were focused on, on leveling the playing field for small business, providing a fair opportunity for small business to compete on the merits, right? No special favors, but just a chance, a shot at competing on the merits. And often that was focused on rural America and within that agriculture. And so uh, uh, what I learned from the history is that you hear a lot about efficiency and there's absolutely a, pace, a place for efficiency, you know, antitrust enforcement, but uh, is it the lodestar, you know, not when uh, of antitrust, not when you read the congressional debates, is it, you know, is it, is it the lodestar when you read the statutes? Again, you know, we are charged by statute with, with protecting the American public and American business against unfair, unfair, methods of competition, not inefficient methods of competition. And so that is what that, you know, the last year has really taught me. And, and I'm lucky to have the help of, of uh, not just Max, but also Catherine Sanchez and, and a big team that, that helps me make sense of all this. So, um, so yeah, that's been, that's been the last year for me. So, you know, as you just walked back through the history of kind of where we came from with the antitrust and what the arguments were, um, you know, Dr. Horton has helped has helped educate our listeners about the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act and what was going on in American history at that time, especially in rural America, and how America used to be the gold standard for antitrust enforcement. I mean, the rest of the world was looking at us at that period of time. How did we get here today? Why are, you know, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, why aren't these laws being enforced? So uh, um, I, I learned a lot about this as well, and 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 there's a there's a public story, and a lot of aspects of it are true. And and I will say that that having you know being at the, at the commission for six months, aspects of that public story are true. Uh, but there's also aspects that are a little complicated. And so, uh, um, top line, you know, starting in the 1970s and 80s, there was uh, um, an, an, a reaction among uh, certain academics uh, and certain um, economists that uh, who argued that antitrust enforcement had become too uh, impressionistic and uncertain. Uh, and, and in fairness to them, you know, uh, there there wasn't there was a lot less math. Uh, 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 and, and a lot less measuring in antitrust back then than, than we have today. 
but they, you know, uh, not just Judge Bork, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, Frank Easterbrook, you know, a number of others uh, uh, argued that, um, that uh, we need we need clear standards about when to enforce and and Judge Bork, you know, of course, put forward this idea that it all comes down to uh, to consumer welfare with a particular focus on on price. But within this kind of body of thinking was this idea that um, that uh, uh, mergers by and large are good, uh, that that bigger in general uh, uh, can often be better, uh, which was which was a paradigm shift from what we had before. Um, and uh, what followed was that a lot of these ideas coming out of Chicago, coming out of Harvard, um, were enshrined in federal law through cases brought to uh, brought before the Supreme Court. And so uh, what happened is that, you know, enforcers started to get have their hands tied by the precedents that were coming down from the courts, right? Even if they disagreed with the shift, even, even if they disagreed with what was coming out of Chicago and Harvard, um, they started having to deal with Supreme Court and Court of Appeals precedent that said the lodestar of antitrust is efficiency and the lodestar of antitrust is, is consumer welfare, particularly price. And so, you know, I, I, I think there are some that say, hey, enforcers, you were asleep at the wheel. And I think it's much more complicated than that. I think I think they had to deal with these precedents uh, that were coming down from the courts that really circumscribed uh, 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 enforcers' ability to to bring a lot of important cases. And so, what Chair Khan, you know, what uh, uh, Attorney Assistant Attorney General Cantor, uh, uh, and with a lot of what a lot of terrific, you know, state enforcers, Attorney General Miller, among others, uh, Attorney General Racine here in D.C. Um, uh, they're trying to resurrect. And, and what I'm trying to do with my team is, is, is return to the original understanding of the law. You know, look, I'm a former Hill staffer. For me, what Congress said and did is really important, but, um, but uh, uh, it's not just me. And, and you cannot look at that legislative history. You cannot listen to what Congress said and not come away with an understanding that the heart of antitrust is, is fairness rather than efficiency. And that antitrust emphatically is concerned with harms to small business. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely, it should be concerned with harms to harms to consumers. Uh, uh, absolutely, yes, I care about price. I care about quality. I care about service. I care about what happens in in the checkout line. Um, but I also care about small businesses getting a fair shake. And so, what we are trying to do uh, as enforcers is is swing the pendulum back to the original understanding of of these laws. You, you just um, kind of reminded me of one of what I found to be a really profound statement that you had in your um, editorial, that being that farmers have raised alarms about the consolidation of the input and product markets. Economists have answered that consolidation is unquestionably enhancing efficiency. When antitrust was guided by fairness, these farmers' families were part of a thriving middle class across rural America. After the shift to efficiency, their livelihoods began to disappear. It sounds like you have, you know, seen rural America pretty personally. You, sit, you talk about, um, you know, Minnesota and, and rural Louisiana. Expand on your thoughts here of what you of what you see. How consolidation sure. is harming our rural communities. So a lot of, of kind of the spirit of, of that statement came from a round table that we did in, in Des Moines. Uh, so um, the team uh, convened a, a group of uh, cattlemen and corn growers 
and it was like eight or nine or 10 people. And I, I, I got to tell you, it was the most, um, uh, I don't want to be too dramatic, but it, it was the most eye-opening, you know, 60 to 90 minutes I've had as a commissioner. And I've been commissioner for about, for about six months. Um, and what they talked about, and, and, and every single person in that room was, was in a crisis in some way or another. And, and, and what they kept on coming back to was, was consolidation. You know, they would talk about input markets. They would talk about product markets. It used to be there might be dozens of, of places, you know, where they could buy uh, uh, seeds. You know, it could be a, a, at least a handful of places they could get their, their cattle processed, uh, um, meatpacking plants they could take their cattle to. And now there are often one or two places for any particular input and uh, often one place they could take their cattle to be processed. And, uh, you know, I remember this particular moment, this gentleman was there, his family had been in the seed business uh, um, for generations. And uh, he showed me a, a yellow uh, kind of notepad with the names of 12 seed brands, seed companies they used to sell. And all but two of them were crossed out. Over the last several decades, you know, one company had bought the other, the other had gone on a business, and now his family sold two brands of seeds, uh, and that was it. And um, and it's no surprise, you know, you know, you don't need to be, you know, an economist or a rocket scientist to understand what what this does to to farmers and cattlemen, right? You know, if if your input markets are being concentrated and and the places where you can sell your product is being concentrated. What you're going to see is you're going to see the input prices in general. Obviously, there's exceptions, but in general, you're going to see the input prices go up and you're going to see the price for the products go down. And so it used to be that that farmers would get 40 cents of every dollar spent at the grocery. Now they get 16 or 17 cents. And uh, uh, and so they're going out of business by the thousands. Uh, and, um, you know, there was this, this other uh, um uh, a woman who attended the, the, the session um, who said, hey, look, look across Iowa. You know, you got 850 or so main streets, 800 of them have been hollowed out by what's going on here. Uh, uh, 800 of them are a shadow of what they used to be. Uh, and so this isn't just what's happening to farmers or cattlemen or corn growers. It's what's happening to their homes, to their communities, where uh, um, where the the the. the um, concentration is 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 reducing their paycheck but also uh the, the fruits of that uh, uh is not invested in those communities anymore right it goes to some centralized company elsewhere and the, the other thing that 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 came up was it wasn't just money right it wasn't just economy it wasn't just jobs some of the most horrible stuff was uh you know you'd have cattlemen and and these are you know i don't need to tell you these are tough people right these are people who have been through it all uh, you know, grown men and women uh, saying through tears, you know, what it's like to gas, you know, uh, you know, the other thing, and, and, and you give me a lot of credit, you know, uh, I, I wish I spent more time in rural America. I'm not from rural America, you know, um, uh, but, um, you know, one thing that comes through in speaking to, to cattlemen in particular is how much they care about, uh, about their cattle, their livestock, you know, uh, um, you know, one, one cattleman talked about, and actually, no, this this was someone who had referred a story to him and was so scared about it getting back to the meatpacker that he had um, recorded an audio message on an encrypted messaging app wow. that he then shared with this other gentleman. Um, uh, and he encrypted it in audio so that it wasn't transcribed, right? So he couldn't just cut and paste. And then this other gentleman shared with us 
what this horrible story of this of this cow and and the thing that was really striking to me and and I want to have more conversations with with cattlemen this was one of the first to be honest with you um how he talked about a specific cow that he knew right this cattleman is saying he'd had this cow for eight years uh he knew her and she she fell uh, when she got to the processor um and she she'd fallen in in the truck and and fell again on the outside and uh, um, what he was told is that uh, they were just going to bolt bolt her right there, and um, and he'd still have to pay the rendering fee, but she'd be thrown in the garbage. Uh, um, they would just bolt her right then and there, and and that's exactly what they did. Uh, uh, and um, and and the way he told that story, you could tell that this was more than just a buck, right? This was more than just a paycheck. This was this was a creature who um, he was slaughtering to feed people. Right. To, to, and, and that's why he did what he did. And so to see her treated this way um, really, you know, just just took him aback. And there were these other stories about um, about uh, about what was happening on the lot that would never have happened before uh, uh, when when there was competition, when you could say, OK, you treat you treat my cattle this way. I'm going to take them somewhere else next time. Um, or you, you heard people talk about how um, how uh, what it's like to gas a warehouse full of cattle. When you, when you have overcrowding because the one place, the one meat packer you can take them to is shut down because of COVID. Uh, um, so it, it, it's not just economics, but it, it definitely is that. It's also just uh, um, their day-to-day -day lives and the respect and dignity that they and, and, and their cattle are treated with. Uh, um, uh, yeah. I should have asked this question earlier, but um, referring back to the FTC not having oversight over the meatpacking industry, tell us who does have the oversight power. Sure. So a combination of USDA and, and DOJ, uh, right? Okay. So, uh, uh, um, you know, standards and whatnot. My understanding is is, is that's that's USDA's uh, area and uh, the mergers, uh, um Mergers and acquisitions in the field would would typically be DOJ. I'm sure there's been exceptions over the years, but uh, but the heart of that lives lives at the U.S. Department of Justice. Okay, interesting. So the plague of corporate efficiency and consolidation has not only taken the legs out from farming and ranching, but it also is you know we just talked about um, really done a number on our rural communities. So how are the remaining small businesses? And rural communities expected to survive under this kind of corporate consolidation climate. What hope is there for them? Yeah, and and look, I'm I'm a lawyer uh, by trade and and not a businessman, um, and so uh, um, and so you know uh, I, I don't have much practical advice, but I do have the perspective of of someone who's been in enforcement for six months with a particular focus on this, and and um, who has been very much focusing you know our, our whole team's effort on on this. And look, what I would say is this, you know, you now have a whole of government approach that's trying to focus on uh, antitrust in rural America and antitrust in agriculture in particular. Um, uh, that's the good news. And, and so you have, you know, USDA issuing rules to prevent retaliation, you know, when when cattlemen complain about issues they see. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the lot, for example, um, making sure they are protected when they file those complaints. Um, you uh, um, and and you have the FTC ramping up, uh, um, ramping up enforcement in areas like right to repair. Uh, um, I know that that you know from Chair Khan and, and frankly from from you know our Republican commissioners, uh, uh, they care a lot about about antitrust in rural America. That that for, uh, pardon me, the uh, pesticides case that was just voted out uh, was a um, 
believe it was a four, it was a unanimous vote. I forget whether whether uh, my old colleague, Commissioner Phillips, um, uh, had left before in that case, but Commissioner Wilson voted for it. So you have um, you have a lot of attention, a lot of interest uh, in this. But the 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 uh, to be candid, it's going to take some time, right? It takes some time for these enforcement efforts to ramp up. Uh, and so the other thing I would do, and, and this comes across in the RCAF uh, messages, uh, particularly from your CEO, is make sure to tell your story to enforcers uh, like me, uh, to your uh, elected officials in your state capital and, and your elected officials in, in DC. Um, I'll tell you, there's, there's, you can read about it on the page. There's nothing quite like sitting in a room full of, of, of cattlemen and corn growers who are saying, you know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's like we're standing on an ice cube. We got a noose around our necks, uh, or it's like being pecked to death, like by a chicken. Uh, um, and and to see just how much they are hurting, and so I would say you know hang in there. Uh, um, uh, yes, you know there are folks in, in D.C. and your state capital who are trying to um, to ramp up uh, enforcement. Uh, um, there's also uh, I think 15 million dollars in, in federal dollars that that's going to let uh, state attorneys general hire uh, staff targeted at these issues. Um, but in the meantime, you know um, try do anything you can to reach out. To folks like me, and I'll say, you know, one thing I saw as a Hill staffer is a lot of times you have um, rural uh, communities reaching out to their representatives, and, and that's good. But I would say, to the degree you can, try to visit the folks from from other places uh, who have who aren't familiar with with these stories, uh, because it's hard to walk out of a room, you know, like the one uh, that we had in Des Moines, and not care about this at a visceral level. Um, and so that's what I would say. Uh, it's it's tough going, but um, but my hope is that there is help on the way, and that with every passing year that we're able to keep up this enforcement, that things will get better slowly. Why should every listener, including consumers, you know, be zoned into this topic? Yeah. So uh, um, I'll, I'll tell you a couple practical reasons, and then one one big picture reason. Um, but um, you know, one of the things you learn when you learn about what's happening to cattlemen is that uh, the price you're paying for, for for beef at the grocery store, and 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 that that higher price tag does not translate into higher you know more money for cattlemen. Um, uh, I'll, I'll share a story I've shared with my team. Um, so I like to grill in the winter because you know I like to feel alive, and uh, it's this little cheat. You know, you feel like uh, um, you're, you're somehow sneaking in something, something fun you do in the summer and the winter. And uh, and so, you know, my wife typically, you know, uh, buys her groceries. And so I said, I'll get some steaks. We're going to grill some steaks uh, this weekend. And so she's like, oh, I got a really good price on these ribeyes. And they showed up and it was like a regular ribeye, but it had been cut horizontally so that it was like a centimeter and a half thick. And and we paid basically regular price for ribeye for what what's a half a ribeye, and and it was one of these moments where look even if it's just ground beef you know you're paying more and more at the checkout line, but uh, people need to know that 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 it's not like cattlemen are making are, are becoming fat cats off of that it's the opposite right they are seeing less and less for their product, um, it's it's the you know a lot of them allege it's the folks in the middle right and and. Um, and so it's the same problem. The same problem of higher prices at the checkout line is the problem that cattlemen are facing of lower prices when they sell their product uh, uh, at the lot. Um, so that's the first practical reason. The other reason is, um, look, uh, when you're talking about, 
I, I'm, you know, I, uh, if you have a family, if you have kids, if you're around little kids, um, uh, everyone knows this, you know, there's a lot of products that, that can, can wait, right. I don't need to get my kids, you know, these chips or, or this juice. Uh, um, uh, but if I run low on milk, you know, I got to fix that straight away. Right. If we don't have beef or meat for them to eat, that's a problem, right? We have to fix that straight away. So they get their protein. And so, um, you know, look, Obviously, you know, I believe in a, in a, in a, in a free market, you know, I, I, I think that, that uh, we win when there's a, there's a strong free market, free competition, but it's not just about dollars and cents. You know, we as Americans have an interest in having cattlemen and having dairy farmers who, uh, uh, who are here in the United States, such that when the next COVID comes, uh, God forbid, uh, uh, the next crisis comes of that scale, uh, uh, you know, not just young parents, but everyone else still has access to milk and beef and meat. Um, and so I think there's, you know, some call it national security, some call it, you know, uh, a health issue, but, um, you know, anything that is driving cattlemen and, uh, uh, and, and other farmers out of business by the thousands is something that you should care about, not just because of the price tag you pay at the checkout line, but also in terms of making sure your family has what it needs at the grocery store. And then lastly, um, uh, 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 Max, who I mentioned, has, has, a, has a line kind of about the principles at play here. Um, and, and so, you know, we owe a particular debt to farmers uh, um, uh, for our antitrust laws. And so he wrote a couple of years ago something that, that has really stuck with me, which is if antitrust is failing farmers, antitrust is simply failing, full stop. And, and so this isn't just any old industry. This is an industry that, that we, to, to whom we owe, to which we owe uh, our antitrust laws for. And so if, it's, if those folks are, are, are suffering, if those folks are going out of business by the thousand, it, it's, it's not just uh, um, you know, one industry becoming more efficient. It's, it's, it's a crisis. And so um, just as a matter of principle, on top of practical reasons of what happens at your grocery store, I think, I think we need to care. That is excellent. Great yes. reminder. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Great explanation. Um, preaching to the choir. Yes. <laughs> so now what? What do we do to yeah. fight back against this consolidation and return healthy competition back to America for the best interests of consumers and our communities? Yeah. So uh, I, I don't mean to be repetitive, but but here are the top lines for me, and then and then I'll hone in a little bit as to what our team is doing specifically and how we're spending our time. Um, so uh, uh, look again, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I agree with the president on some things, I disagree with him on some things, but um, but President Biden has said, you know, we are following a whole of government approach, and 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 Chair Khan, you know, our chair has said that that we want to be a part of that approach. We're an independent commission. She could have said, well, that's nice, but uh, not doing that. Uh, um, but no, I mean, she 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 has said that uh, we're going to be part of this of this effort. Um, and so it's not just the FTC; it's also USDA and DOJ who are thinking hard about about how to help. But but as for us, here's what 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 we're doing. Um, first of all, right to repair is is a top priority. Uh, um, you know, three cases I mentioned: Weber, I mentioned um, mentioned Harley Davidson. There's also a case uh, Westinghouse Energy Generators, which are really important rural areas as well, um, where the commission is going out of its way to make sure that. Um, that folks have the ability to repair their products without incurring even greater expenses. Uh, and, um, and, and again, I would say that, that for folks listening who have a story to tell about their farm equipment, their ranch equipment, uh, 
where they encountered this, please, please share that information with the FTC. Go to FTC.gov. There's a number of ways you can report this. But um, uh, and also you can reach out to me and my team. Uh, um, uh, I'm I'll just say, you know, uh, uh, I'm a Bedoya at FTC.gov. A Bedoya, B like boy, E, D like dog, O, Y, A at FTC.gov. Uh, uh, I would like to hear from you uh, directly uh, uh, about about this stuff. Uh, so that's right to repair. Second, um, we are trying to learn everything possible about about input markets. Um, uh, we were thrilled that the FTC staff, uh, the ACP team, the, the anti-competitive practices team, put a terrific team on this. And, and for years worked this pesticides case. Um, and, um, and, you know, they have heard from the top from Democrats and Republicans. Yes, please. You know, we need more of these cases. This is exactly the kind of case we should be bringing uh, um, because those inputs have so many downstream effects, you know, not just on the corn growers, uh, uh, not just on the cattlemen, but the whole, whole all the way down to the to the consumer and the public. And so, uh, you need to know that when I meet with with these shops, I say, okay, what are we doing, you know, in healthcare? What are we doing in, in food supply? Uh, um, uh, and and what are we doing to help um, folks in rural and urban America? And that's another conversation another day. Um, what's happening in rural urban America? Although it's very similar to what's happening in, in rural America, um, I'd actually love to talk with you about that um, offline uh, or in another setting because um, uh, there's a lot of a lot of overlap. Um, lastly, uh, um, the retail sector. Right, so we have this law passed in 1936, the Robinson-Patman Act, that um, we need to be better about uh, trying to enforce to make sure that that your independent grocer, you know, has a shot uh, at competing on the merits. Right? There's a line out there about Robinson-Patman that that eliminates quantity discounts. That is not what it does. Uh, uh, what it does is is offer you know the independent uh, uh, retailer, the independent grocer, the opportunity to get the same terms. Uh, uh, when uh, uh, when often they can meet those quantity discounts or or other other factors apply, but um, we want to reinvigorate that law. Um, and that law, by the way, isn't just about about secret discounts. Um, it's also about secret rebates and and making sure that if someone is acting as your broker, they're not they're not getting kickbacks from the other party. Which uh, uh, there are a lot of allegations about about kickbacks in a number of different industries um, in 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 a lot of the spaces we've talked about. Um, uh, but lastly, you know, I can tell you what 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 my team and I are doing. Um, one thing I'm really proud of is uh, uh, it may sound silly, but um, you know, when you become a commissioner, you get all these invitations to uh, conferences. You know, and the last one, you know, was in Switzerland, and and, and you know, sure, I'd like to go to Switzerland. That'd be nice, uh, but uh, that's not that's not what what we're trying to prioritize here. Um, you know, I'm I'm really proud that you know the first three trips we've taken are uh, respectively to West Virginia, to Des Moines, and to Minneapolis. And the next big trip we're taking is to Pine Ridge in South Dakota. Uh, um, what we are really trying to do is prioritize, you know, and the other thing about those conferences is, is you get this, this opportunity to speak as if you're this oracle of, of knowing, knowing everything. And I'll hear my interesting thoughts about X and Y and Z. And most of the folks in the audience and look, in fairness, I am one of those folks, right? You know, I'm one of the folks who sits in those kinds of audiences. Um, so no, no disrespect to these people, but but most of them are either lawyers or enforcers or regulators or lobbyists. And so uh, we're trying to do the opposite, right? We're trying to um, spend our time in uh, uh, in rural America and elsewhere in the country where we are listening to people and hearing their stories about what they're experiencing um, and uh, and looking for ways to to help. 
so that's that's what we are trying to do. And so um, I do have two toddlers at home, and so I can't. You know, I'm not too popular when I spend too much time on the road. But um, but when when I can take these windows, that's what we're trying to prioritize. And sure, I'm going to speak at some conferences just like everyone else. But um, but that, that's how we're trying to spend our time listening to the folks who are living this uh, living this stuff uh, every single day. Well, Commissioner Bedoya, this has been a very enlightening and very interesting conversation. So do you have any other final comments you want to add? I don't. I'm just excited about the last question, which, uh, uh, but but we don't have to get to that yet. If you, if you okay, know. well, we're here. We're, we're to it. So around here, we love beef. That's no secret. So no. last question we always like to finish with, and I know you're excited to answer, <laughs> is what is your favorite kind of beef and how do you like it prepared? So, so it's kind of both a comment and a question. So when, when I was not a dad, um, uh, I was, I was taught to cook steak by a guy from Bolivia who comes from uh, rural Bolivia. And so what he taught me, and I, I was, um, uh, um, you know, I was, I was probably like 20 years old or something. He taught me, he's, he, there's this thing they do where they take rosemary and garlic and they chop it up really fine and they actually insert it in the steak. Uh, and, uh, and then, um, and then I asked, I told my mom, I was like, oh, I learned to cook steak this way. She said, oh, you know, bistec a lo macho, uh, uh, which basically means manly steak. Uh, um, and uh, I don't know, is, is there, have you heard of this? Because because anytime, yeah, is that a thing? So tell, tell me about that. I've just heard about it in that culture. I wouldn't say oh, it's yeah? like a Midwestern yeah. thing. <laughs> no, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I've heard of that. You, okay. It's really good. Now you lose some of the juiciness, but, um, but it's really, really good. And, but now that I'm with that, it's just a little bit of oil, salt and pepper. Uh, you don't have much time to chop all that stuff up. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, medium rare ribeye, uh, um, with some, with some oil, some salt and some pepper, maybe some garlic powder, maybe a little butter for feeling rich, but, uh, that's it. <laughs> that sounds good to us. <laughs> that is always a good answer. Ribeye is always a safe answer. Thank you so much for being on with us today. And thank, thank you, you for all the work you do. We appreciate and, it. And let me say one thing. The next time you come to DC, please come visit uh, at the commission. Uh, we'd love to have a cup of coffee with you um, and, and to meet your folks. So um, uh, just reach out to Max, reach out to Catherine, and we'll set it up. We are so thankful to Commissioner Bedoya for joining us and for having such a fantastic conversation with us and for sharing his insights and experiences. We are also thankful to him and his team for paying special attention to this topic and for all the work they are putting in to benefit American consumers, cattle producers, and our rural communities. So thanks for tuning in today. As always, stay involved in the conversation and follow us at USA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAF USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAF USA, visit our website, www.r-calfusa.com.